You are listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about this show, as well as the other show I do, How to Stan, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com and subscribe to my newsletter at howtostan.substack.com. K-pop interviews, album reviews, and more. Subscribing is free, but if you want to continue to support my work, feel free to donate. Click the support the show button on the homepage at 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Quick heads-ups about today's episode. It is going to get quite dark and serious at times, talking about depression and anxiety, and this book I'm going to talk about is really deep and really serious and dark, but it does have really, I think, meaningful, helpful ways of describing a complex condition. It's been a profound read for me. It's helped me a lot as I deal with, as I've talked about before on the show, severe anxiety, panic attacks, etc. I see a lot of myself and I've, you know, dealt with some depression. Luckily, not a chronic type, really. I don't know. My brain's weird. Anyway, this episode will hopefully remind you that you're not alone and that these issues are ones that are not a character defect, and you deserve to be treated as humanly and kindly as anyone. So ultimately, this episode gets dark, but it will not get into graphic self-injury details or anything like that, so hopefully it won't be triggering. It will just focus on seeing this condition biologically, philosophically, psychologically, through the lens of the author. And also, I just want to clarify that although I deal with mental illness, I'm not a doctor, I'm talking about meds in the way the author does, so just know I am not recommending any specific med or treatment that I talk about today. Full disclosure, just please remember that. Consult someone else about that. I'm not getting recommendations. I'm laying out what he wrote in his book and the quotes that really resonated with me. You can do with that knowledge what you will. For lack of a better term, be an authority on what it's like to live with mental illness, not an authority on what to do about it, medicine-wise. Without further ado, let's start by talking about a similar story. The Midnight Library by Matt Haig is a fictional story about Nora Seed, a very extraordinary woman who does not enter purgatory, but rather an in-between death and life state all its own. When she ends her life due to depression, feeling like she's lost it all, her cat, her best friend, her job, her brother... Her life is just really, it sucks, and she just doesn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So where she ends up going is where these people called Sliders go. It's a place called the Midnight Library, where Mrs. Elm, a librarian, is her guide. Kind of tutors her, assists her, going from book to book, option to option. And while she's there then, Nora gets to transport herself into those different options. Basically, it's a way of her constantly asking herself what if and actually seeing what that would have looked like. She gets to satisfy her curiosity and answer all of her what-if scenarios, living out the options one by one of what could have happened if she had stuck around. Critical reviews of this story found that premise fascinating, but its execution pretty light. So if you do want a thought-provoking read that doesn't have a super meaty narrative, this might be for you. It is a clever premise. If you want more fully developed, layered characters, maybe this is not for you. It does have some thought-provoking quotes, though, 
including one that sums up the premise I've been talking about throughout Arms Rex and the BT Study Guides series of episodes. This thought of the limitations of language, and just how profound and complex and layered human experiences truly are, words cannot encapsulate all of it. And life often is thought of in black and white ways when it's way too complex for that to ever be the case. So here's a quote from Mrs. Elm that really stuck with me. She, regarding Nora, had read about multiverses and about how human brains take complex information and simplify it, so that when a human looks at a tree, it translates the intricately complex mass of leaves and branches into this thing called tree. To be human was to continually dumb down the world into an understandable story that keeps things simple. She knew that everything humans see is a simplification. A human sees the world in three dimensions. That is a simplification. Humans are fundamentally limited, generalizing creatures, living on autopilot, who straighten out curved streets in their minds, which explains why they get lost all the time. Isn't that interesting? that it's almost like we want to get a handle on and cope with the complexities of this vast world by simplifying things, but then we end up getting lost and losing sight of what things truly are in the process. This depressed character, Nora, desires to see it as not my life is great, all sunshine and roses, or the opposite, not worth living anymore. She wants to find that middle ground, but she's, her brain has trained her not to. And that's why she feels like she's on autopilot, and that's not bringing her joy. It's up for interpretation, though. But I start out this episode talking about The Midnight Library because it reminded me of another book, not just because of the title, but The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon is a book that RM from BTS has recommended several times at fan meetings and on VLive. And so I checked it out, and... Almond is still my favorite out of all the books I've checked out because BTS recommended them to me. But wow, this is a close second. It's really, really powerful. It's a book made off of this wildly popular piece from the same author, published in 1998 in The New Yorker. It's him sharing his personal experiences with depression in a very, very unflinching way. He really... Wow, his, his wording... Plus, what he does that I think is so impressive is in this book and in that essay, he lays out depression in its many angles. It's not this simplified character trait. It's not this singular issue. It's not something that has one clear cause or a clear effect. He allows for the messiness in his own explanations. He describes living with it as, he does so in a way that's not sugar-coated at all, it's very real, raw, powerful, relatable, in all of its fullness. He talks about how discussing progression is just not the right framing. It's a back-and-forth pendulum type of situation more. He talks about it in terms of biology, social traits, philosophy. He incorporates input from doctors, fellow survivors, scientists, policymakers, philosophers, he ensures that he talks about this condition with the fullness and depth it deserves, and with so much care. 
And he does a great job at doing what I've been going on about, finding words for and analogies for the expressions and emotions that I have a hard time finding words to fully capture. He talks about his symptoms over the years that started in June of 1994. He's a longtime writer and had gotten a bunch of positive reviews for his first novel, but he felt very indifferent to them. Not like you'd expect a first-time author getting so much praise. That sounds like a dream come true moment. Not for him, he didn't feel anything. And he would constantly feel the sense of almost like being frozen. A sense of being too overwhelmed to do anything but sit and or lie there. He describes even once he was going on a walk and he just gave up partway through the walk and just lay in the mud for a very long time. A real struggle he describes in excruciating detail about how sometimes everything suddenly feels like it takes up too much energy and commitment to get up, to chew, to walk to the bathroom. This overwhelming sense that you're you have this deluge of tasks ahead and can't start a single one. He was also dealing with numbness, night terrors, panic attacks, and a lot of sudden moments of panic just because he flat out his mind went blank and he forgot how to do something. Something like really usually is instinctual. You don't have to consciously remember how to do it, like how to turn over in bed or actually get up out of bed. It's not all emotional. He looks at data-driven thoughts about it too. He says depression was predicted to take more lives than war and AIDS combined by 2020. So I went to the CDC site to see if this happened. And the site does list suicide as one of the 10 highest causes of death in the USA. And neither war nor AIDS is on the list, so I guess it did surpass them. Now them combined, I don't know about. Also worth noting that there are probably underreports here, and being in war can be linked to things like getting cancer and other things that actually kill you after war. Plus, there's a category of what's called unintentional injuries that could refer to war injury. The point is, I wouldn't be surprised if his prediction turned out to be correct. He also found that only 28% of people with major depression around that turn of the century time he wrote this sought professional help. Tom Ware, the head of sleep research at the National Institute of Mental Health, said, quote, Though depressed people seek the oblivion of sleep, it is in sleep that the depression is maintained and intensified. He talks about the many biological connections between anxiety and depression, including overlapping genotypes they have. That's why it is so common to have both. He talks about how meds can and cannot help, and the importance of having a therapy component too not solely meds for depression. He talked about childhood trauma's lingering effects. The specialist he talked to actually said, it's a myth that depressed people have less serotonin than others. So what's different about their brains is not serotonin levels, but serotonin activation, the ways the serotonin functions in their brain. Antidepressants are effective about 75% of the time, again at the time of this writing. Shelley Taylor, the author of Positive Illusions, pointed out how what complicates this picture is depressed people are not a lost cause, they are the opposite. And they have a lot of potential, and you gotta be careful how you talk about this because obviously she's not endorsing being depressed or whatever, if that's even something you could force on yourself, which it's not, but whatever. But her way of describing depressed people I do think is important. 
and should remind them that they still have value. Because there are some traits that are, I don't want to say positive about depression, but the people who tend to have depression do have traits that are really, let me just let her say it. Quote, The mildly depressed appear to have more accurate views of themselves, the world, and the future. They clearly lack the illusion. In normal people, the author goes on to write about how biology in humans is all about changing your adaptive state to meet the moment. Humans, and any creature really, evolves in response to a changing world. And humans also will adapt for certain states of being. The author ponders if a depressive state could be one of them. An adaptive biological reaction to something. A sense of being dragged down, a lack of energy and focus, a sense of being overwhelmed. Could that be something that's a biological trend? He also talks about the enormous help sometimes with this treatment called ECT, which has a quicker time period to start working than some other antidepressant treatments and meds. He really has a very refreshingly nuanced take on the use of meds. He doesn't paint them out to be bad or good, doesn't discuss them in that binary way. But he does address the dangerous mindset that they are totally wrong to take. He was told, actually, by one psychoanalyst once that he was so brave for avoiding meds. That's a very toxic thing to tell someone. So I love his response of, quote, To take medications as part of the battle is to battle fiercely, and to refuse them is as ludicrous as entering a modern war on horseback. He recalls this story where he had a conversation with a woman who decided she would just try to get rid of depression by getting rid of everything in her life that caused her stress. So she straight up quit her job, broke up with her boyfriend, etc. That's something to really sit and think about. If you feel like there's no other way to handle your life than to throw it away, and you insist throwing it away will actually help more than the med, that's a problem. He admits he quit meds cold turkey against his psychiatrist's wishes in the spring of 95, because he wanted to learn who he was without them. And that's really relatable. It feels like society wants to, once you admit to having a mental illness, society wants you to be defined by that. And so it feels very odd if you try to wean off of anything, because suddenly it feels like, without that physical symbol of your condition, People will think your struggle's over, and then the soul trait they used to see you is gone, and then that human need to be seen is gone. It can take an emotional toll to go off meds, even without all the biological, physical toll aspects of it. But then he also talks about how he feared if he tried to wean off instead of cold turkey stop, he would never get to a point where he'd feel comfortable entirely off them. He compared the effects of doing this, just cutting it off cold turkey though, to an animal whose brain grew accustomed to having seizures. So the day the cause of the seizures is gone, the animal will still have another seizure. You can take away the meds or put them back, but your body has conditioned itself in a certain way. In his writing, he repeatedly emphasizes the importance of community, solidarity, people in his corner every step of the way. Who's really there for you? on your worst days, on those days where you need help just getting out of bed. Quote, Nothing taught me more about the love of my father and my friends than my own depression. It's interesting that he is writing about and researching 
dedicating all this time to understanding and publicly discussing mental illness. Yet he didn't tell more than just a few close friends about his diagnosis. He told his more casual friends when he was absent he's dealing with some sort of other virus. The stigma is affecting people even like him who have dedicated their lives to understanding this illness better. That's an important thing to remember. There are quite a few quotes here I really want to stop and take in. First up, I did not experience depression until I had pretty much solved my problems. He said it had been years since his mom died. His personal and professional lives were thriving. He just bought a new house. So he says, quote, I'd felt acutely that there was no excuse for it under the circumstances, despite perennial existential crises, the forgotten sorrows of a distant childhood, slight wrongs done to people now dead, the truth that I am not Tolstoy, the absence in this world of perfect love, and those impulses of greed and uncharitableness. Then he suddenly went through those memory archives, spiraling a bit to the past, redating when he thinks, wait, I actually first felt depressed then. No, maybe it was then. No, maybe it was then, to the point where he couldn't remember when he wasn't depressed. Definitely my case with anxiety, when I look back. You know what, maybe I've just always been this way. And it's interesting how maybe you don't come to terms with the specific language for what's happening until you have surpassed a certain time frame living with it. Really thought-provoking quote number two. If you trip or slip, there is a moment before your hand shoots out to break your fall when you feel the earth rushing up at you and you cannot help yourself. A passing fraction of a second horror. I felt that way hour after hour. Now that is a perfect way he found to describe what life with anxiety is like. It's like that moment when you're falling and you have that sudden rush of, oh my gosh, that sudden feeling of shock. Only it happens over every little thing, all day long. Here's a quote that I personally love because of my issues with the limitations of language, as I've said before. Quote, little has been written about the fact that depression is ridiculous. All I wanted was for it to stop, but I could not say what it was. Words, with which I have always been intimate, seemed suddenly like complex metaphors, the use of which entailed much more energy than I had. I love that part about, this is ridiculous. What is this it that I'm scared of, or it that I'm wanting to stop feeling? Key quote three, when you are depressed, the past and the future are absorbed entirely by the present as in the world of a three-year-old. You can neither remember feeling better nor imagine that you will feel better. Being upset is a temporal experience, whereas depression is atemporal. Depression means that you have no point of view. There's a similarity with my moments of panic where I don't, I can't tell myself, hey, remember you've been through this nerve-wracking situation before, you'll do it again, or, well, you have to do it now and you'll be glad you did it in the future, get it over with. Those pieces of advice, based on chronology, fall flat when you're dealing with a condition like this where you're not registering the passage of time like that. There are a couple here I'm going to connect. We are told to learn self-reliance, but it's tricky if you have no self on which to rely. We now identify as pathology, many things that were previously accepted as personality. 
How do you learn self-reliance if you have not been able to figure out what self you rely on? And he describes feeling like when crawling out of the dark hole during depressed moments, re-entering the real world is really hard. How do you relearn things? Reacclimate yourself. And I feel the same way sometimes after a panicky situation. So how am I supposed to go back there? I have to relearn how to re-enter that situation with a better outcome. When something so profound as like a panic attack happens in your life, it feels very odd to just go back like nothing happened. It's sort of like if you go on a trip or otherwise take off a week from school or work, and then you come back and it feels different. Something feels different because your brain already had adapted to a different new routine, and now you're back to the daily grind, and that pace is just different and feels foreign for a bit. It takes a moment to regain your sea legs. It's kind of like that, where I'm in a situation like, wait, so everything's normal? But I'm not normal, I'm changed. This is weird. Key quote five, citing a poem actually by Jane Kenyon that I really love. Suddenly, I fall into my life again. Like a vole picked up by a storm, then dropped three valleys and two mountains away from home. I can find my way back. I know I will recognize the store where I used to buy milk and gas. I remember the house and barn, the rake, the blue cups, the Russian novels I loved so much, and the black silk nightgown that he once thrust into the toe of my Christmas stocking. And then this author Andrew says, quote, And so it was for me. Everything seemed strange, then became abruptly familiar. And I realized that the deep melancholy that had started when my mother got ill, had worsened when she died, had built beyond grief into despair, and had disabled me, was not disabling me anymore. I was still sad about the sad things, but I was myself again. So just like there are those moments where you forget everything and feel like you have to relearn it, you do then readjust back into that old routine, kind of like riding a bike. You get back into the groove. And that can be so exciting and make even the mundane suddenly feel welcoming. Because at least you have a self on which to rely again. Key quote six. I suspect that the most important function of grief is in the formation of attachment. If you do not fear loss, you cannot love intensely. Homesickness showed how much I loved my parents. Losing my mother not only depressed me, but also intensified my love for her and for people still alive. So he talks about that sense of grief as serving a purpose when it is in the formation of attachment in the formation of this intense gripping desire to love and be loved. This is so weird, but it's kind of like the WandaVision quote about what is grief but love persevering. That sums it up. 7. The opposite of depression is not happiness, but vitality. In my life as I write this is vital even when it's sad. Vitality. Living and losing, but at least living. That's the goal. Key quote number eight. I was not brought up religious, and I think that when you die, you're dead. Yet I have also discovered what I guess I would have to call a soul, something I had never imagined until one day, two and a half years ago, when hell came to pay me a surprise visit. It's a precious discovery. Again, it's hard to find words to best articulate this point, because in a simplified way, it doesn't sound right. But what I'm trying to say, not having the words for, is there are ways that as someone with mental illness, there's something to admire about them. 
Those people have such bravery. We have strength. We have a desire, maybe buried, but still there, to live and love. And we're in touch with such deep human emotions. We're feeling so much that sometimes it masquerades as feeling nothing at all. It's a precious discovery. We're very layered, complex people. And that's what living is really all about. So again, it's hard. I'm not saying, hey, on the bright side, think of it this way, because I know that that language can be very frustrating and beside the point and sounds like it's trivializing the issue. But I have personally felt some solace with trying to change my frame of mind a bit to be about, hey, you're not broken. You've got a very unique, special way to see the world and live through it in a profoundly impactful way for you and people who come after you. The big evergreen quote from the piece. The last big quote I want to share. The mix of mystery and specificity is always enormously powerful. Doesn't that sum up life? The mix of mystery and specificity is always so powerful. That's what we desire, right? We desire mystery and predictability in our lives. If you really like this guy's work, he also wrote this really interesting piece that I will link to on my website, as well as links to this writing. He also wrote about this healing ritual he underwent in West Africa. It's this ritual that involved livestock, while drums play, people dance around him, he had to cover himself in blood, it was quite a situation. But he said what was so valuable is that rituals like that completely dissociate yourself from the illness. The physical objects outside of yourself come to represent that internal struggle. So as he was undergoing this ritual, he stopped thinking of himself as solely defined by the label of depressed. Suddenly, the blankets he had to use, the stuff he put under his pillow, came to represent what he had felt like he was only dealing with on the inside, not visibly. The later part of the article is when he talks about meeting with the Inuit people of Greenland, who live in this culture of shaming, self-pity. They suffer vast depression, in part due to this extensive period of time every year where they don't have sunlight. He writes about it, though, in a cautiously hopeful way, because he talks about their support group for the woman there. Because, he says, after all, depression is a disease of loneliness. It's an emotionally heavy episode, but this was so important to me to share. So thank you all for listening, and please know that if you deal with mental illness, I'm right there with you, and we've got this, but it's really hard to see how sometimes. So hopefully this helped. Hopefully you can share this episode if you need to find a way to describe what it feels like to have the condition you have, and I hope people at the end of the day do read stuff like this and don't just look at the emotional aspect of a disease, but everything. Biological, philosophical, how people deal with it. It's a multifaceted condition that should be discussed with care and nuance. Understanding its complexity in turn helps you both understand the people who have it and understand how important it is to see them as so much more than that illness. I hope this resonated with people. I will talk to you again with much lighter stories very soon.